This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you're listening to the Sunday Twilight Show with Maud. It is 17 past 5 on Sunday, the 19th of March 2023, and you can join me using the chat function. We can discuss today's topic, which is femininity and feminism in education. Welcome! This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Good afternoon and fellow educators and dear listeners. This is my 33rd radio show as your hostess and I'm delighted to share this experience in your company. But first I have to introduce myself for any new potential listener. I'm a French citizen of French and West African ancestry. Having lived in the UK since 2008, I'm a professional educator working in a secondary state school in North London where I teach languages as well as humanities. French for case four and history, geography and Spanish for case three. I have also experience as a teacher in the charity sector. You can follow me on Twitter at profprofmfl. All views are my own. Today, I would like to focus on a topic that is very relevant to me as an educator. And the podcast will be on the topic of femininity and feminism in education. This is mostly relevant to female employees in the education sector, but also anyone who works in the education sector and the curious and savvy. I did my own Twitter poll uh, the previous week where I asked any educators if they had had an assembly on the topic of International Women's Day, because it was International Women's Day on the 8th of March. And I asked in my poll if the assembly had been led by man, by woman, by both, or by no one, if no one had had the idea of having an assembly on the issue of International Women's Day. And it appears that out of 45 votes, 71% did not have an assembly that mentioned International Women's Day. And of those who had an assembly, 24% said they had a woman and 4% said it was a man. So not so good out of these 45 votes to notice that an International Women's Day was barely mentioned in schools. In my school, most of the staff who are um, working together have decided, had decided to wear purple on the 8th of March. And there was 16 members of staff and we took a picture and put it on Twitter. It was a little attention, but it was very well received. Now, as usual, you know me by now as your podcaster, whenever I start a topic, I like to look at the etymology of the words I'm using. I'm a linguist and words have power. So I looked at the definition of the word femininity. Femininity is the qualities or attributes regarded as characteristic of women 
all girls. So it appears that when you use the term femininity, it describes the way women and girls are perceived. So obviously, this, this definition is going to vary depending on the culture you live in, the society you live in, but also the era you live in. I assume the uh, definition of femininity was very different in Roman times, from medieval times, to modern times and to our contemporary times as well. The definition of feminine attributes has been studied by many sociologists and historians. We have the traditional gender stereotypes, which I would describe as 19th century vision of femininity and masculinity. Gender is a construct and these stereotypes are still sometimes present in the way we perceive women and men. So I'll, I'll give you a few examples of these stereotypes of femininity. There is the idea that when you're feminine, you're not aggressive, you're dependent, easily influenced, submissive or passive, home-oriented, easily hurt emotionally, indecisive, talkative, gentle, sensitive to feelings, desirous of security, crying a lot, emotional, verbal, kind, tactful and nurturing. And by opposition, these traditional gender stereotypes that we're familiar with since particularly the 19th centuries, there was visions of masculinity as being aggressive, independent, not easily influenced, dominant, active, worldly, not easily hurt emotionally, decisive, tough, less sensitive to others, logical, analytical, sometimes cruel, blunt, or not nurturing. These are stereotypes, traditional ones, but they're still, they're still pervading our culture a lot. I'm always interested in people who are trying to challenge perceptions. And I also am a musician, so I looked into the idea of how femininity is uh, perceived in the music business. And I found a very interesting blog written by Nicole Kirch. She's a North Carolina-based recording engineer and musician. And she's working on electronics, post-production, stage crew, location. So she's, uh, I'm sure she would be happy to be described as a music nerd and a tech person. And she works for the empowerment of women in independent music. And she has a very, very interesting blog called soundgirls.org. And in that blog, she described in one post the sound of cinematic femininity. What does she mean by that? Well, she means that femininity is obviously perceived and um, broadcast in a certain way. And sound has been used in movies and in adverts to convey an idea of what a woman should sound like. And she wrote a whole po post on this. She says that Hollywood uses sound and female voices to fit a certain gender stereotype. So in movies, female voices will be seen as usually sopranos. And um, it is quite interesting to see that Snow White was dubbed by a soprano, the, the original Disney Snow White. And it was a soprano that was chosen because they wanted someone who has uh, a very soft and frail type of voice. And uh, this idea of the feminine voice has been kept 
for many decades. And we'll, um, Nicole Kirch gives the example of the musical Singing in the Rain, which was produced in 1952. And Debbie Reynolds is the leading lady. She's the actress and she sings and dances in Singing in the Rain. But the Hollywood producers who made the movie decided that her, that her voice was not feminine enough even though it was the voice of a woman who was hired to play uh, the role. So they decided to make her sing and to overdub all her takes by another singer, soprano, Marnie Nixon. And um, it's her voice, Marnie Nixon's voice, who is who's, who was superimposed on Debbie Reynolds' voice. And the idea was that it should be more like songbird and more frail and more feminine. So... Uh, Marnie Nixon's voice was recorded and used and, and she was used to overdub other female voices in Hollywood because she had a very feminine, stereotype, clean and sweet voice. And I find it fascinating because Hollywood is really good at creating stereotypes. And they decided on what a woman's voice would, should sound like and they've used it again and again. So Marnie Nixon did her whole career on having a perceived feminine voice. Now, how does it transfer in education? Well, we know that education is a political act. State schools were created and funded because they wanted to have citizens who could read uh, political speeches and discourse and be able to vote after receiving an education. So the idea of forming critical minds is part of the concept of having a citizen able to do his or her democratic duty. Schools were for boys originally because only boys voted. Slowly and slowly, girls started receiving an education. But at first, their education was dependent on that femininity, on the ideal of what a woman should do. So the girls were taught feminine subjects. And these feminine subjects were mostly music, not particularly composing music, but performing it. French and Italian were considered languages suitable for a girl. Writing and reading, drawing and numeracy, but not particularly maths as a science, but numeracy for domestic skills to keep the books and being able to do accountancy. So these were the subjects that girls were taught uh, from the Enlightenment onwards. And later on, they added sewing and um, food tech to prepare them to be in the domestic sphere. Female education, obviously, has been um, modelled in a certain way, but it's only after the 1950s that we realised, and through the works of uh, political writings, by proto-feminists such as Mary Wollstonecraft or Leticia Barbo or Hester Chapone, we realized that girls were forced into these soft feminine subjects. I use inverted commas because I don't think French as a language is a soft feminine subject. <laughs> but um, the girls were taught in a certain way. And after the 40s and the 50s, we stopped and we realized that we wanted girls to have access to a more varied um, education resembling boys' education. And nowadays, for instance, there's a big push to encourage girls to go into STEM, which is science and technical studies and maths, so that they can um, work in these fields. Now, I use 
I use the term femininity to talk about that vision of women, but I also use the term feminism. Feminism is seen as controversial and it can be used as an insult in, by some people. But if you look at the meaning of feminism, feminism is just the advocacy of women's rights on the basis of the equality of sexes. So if you believe that girls and boys should be treated the same way or in an equal way, they should be paid the same way and they should have the same rights, then you should be describing yourself as a feminist because feminism is trying to promote um, a universal, inclusive education. Feminism is wanting the best education for girls, but also the best education for boys. And feminism is not about punishing boys or taking away from boys, but giving the best for both. It sounds particularly reasonable in 2023 to want a feminist education for all. I'm saying that, but I'm very much aware that this is still a privilege. If you're a Western girl, you can receive a, a good education, a solid education, which will um, entitle you to make the choices you want to and to guide your career. But let's not forget, let's not forget that this is still not universal. Um, in the 23rd of December 2022, so I would say seven, eight months ago, the Taliban in Afghanistan ordered a total ban on female education. And when it's when we mean female education, it's not just university education, it's also primary school. So they basically outlawed education for girls. And um, this, this is terrorism, it's um, governmental terrorism, but this is a reality for millions of women in Afghanistan. So it is a crime against humanity. It is a crime against girls and women, but it is happening. So I think it is important to work on the issues of femininity and feminism because there are people who are deprived of their education because of their gender. Now, if you look at statistics, and I looked at the UNESCO statistics, we look at net enrollment rates uh, in primary schools. So in the West, more than 95% of children, boys or girls, have access to a state education. Obviously, there's 5% who don't. It might be because they're home educated, or it might be because they don't receive an education. We don't really know why these 5% do not receive education, but it's the same number pretty much for boys and girls. The only places where there's a net distinction between male and female um, net enrollment rates in primary schools are South Asia, where boys are 89% of boys go to primary, but only 88% of girls. So it's a difference, but still there's 15% almost who don't access education. And then the worst rate is still sub-Saharan Africa, where 80% of boys get to primary school and only 75% of girls do. So there's still a lot of work to do, but let's also look at the, the fact that there's still many boys and girls in these regions who do not go to school for political, financial, and cultural reasons. But worldwide, it is still something we should be happy about and proud of. In developed countries, women have access to education just as 
boys do. But I did mention the fact that in developed countries, we notice that even if girls have access to education at the same rate as boys, they're still underrepresented in science, technologies, engineering, and maths. So according to the OECD, 71% of men graduates with a science degree are going to work as professionals in physics, maths, or engineering. But there's a big, big drop because out of all the girls who graduate with a science degree, only 43% of them will work in that field as a professional. So fewer than one in three engineering graduates and fewer than one in five computer science graduates are female in the first place. And then once they graduate, they might not even work in these fields. So we do have a lot of work to do on STEM, which is science, technology, engineering, and maths to get uh, as many women as men. According to researcher Bjorn Tyrefors Heinrich and Eric Hogling and Magnus Johansson's, they have proven that girls at school perform better than boys. So the reasons are multiple and varied, but there is definitely um, an obvious reason and that maybe schools fit girls better than boys because there's no reason why boys wouldn't succeed as well because they're just as clever and if given the, the same tools they might just get exactly the same results so there might be a gender bias in the way we teach uh, or maybe the way school is structured sadly the research shows that difference but it doesn't explain why there are stereotypes against boy in academic performance. Um, some people are saying that boys are label labeled as reliant, lazy, uninterested, having a difficult behavior. These are negative traits, and that might explain lower the lower standards that teachers set for student learning. Or it might also explain the lower academic achievement of boys, but we don't have any evidence or proof of the actual reasons why boys do less well academically than girls. We just know that it's something that has been developed over the last 30 years. It might be explained by a difference in perception between male and female students. Um, Ingela Haslund and Lena Bonström, um, these are Swedish researchers, by the way, have discovered that girls are seen as more autonomous, driven, and high achievers. And boys are seen by their teachers sometimes as troublemakers and underachievers. So there might be a negative bias against boys as well. Camille Terrier, a French uh, researcher, discovered that in arithmetics and French, teachers' gender bias affects um, how far boys advance relatively to girls. So there might also be an issue in the way we um, treat students based on their I think we need more research on this and we also need to see um, when obviously papers are graded for exams there is not always the gender of the student seen by the person who is marking so does it reflect that gender bias when we mark anonymously I think we need more data before we can actually um, target this particular issue whatever we can say is that schools are the product of the society they operate in. So schools mirror the society they are in. I go as far as saying that schools 
or are also a tool that reproduces the way society perceives gender. Many sociologists who looked at education view the educational system as an institution of social and cultural reproduction. What does it mean? It means that schools are a means for a society to reproduce itself or to mold the children in a certain way. It is a gender schema theory that was formally introduced by a sociologist, Sandra Bem, B-E-M, in 1981. So she started working on gender in education in the 70s and she developed a cognitive theory. She explained that individuals become gendered in society because they are taught to operate or behave in a certain way. And she elaborated um, categories to show how this operates and she called it sex-linked characteristics. And she believes that these characteristics, these maybe you could you could name them gender stereotypes, are transmitted in schools. So she called it the BEM Sexual Inventory, BSRI, and she developed it in 1974. And it's a measure of masculinity and femininity. And she used it to research gender roles. So she she identified four different um measures of femininity and masculinity. She called it sex-typed, cross-sex-typed, androgynous, and undifferentiated. Now, these four categories have been used by many other sociologists since they were developed in the 70s. They might sound a little bit obsolete by now. It's a 50-year-old theory, but they're quite interesting because it allowed us to realize that gender is a construct and gender is taught. And um, Sandra Bem also identified something very interesting that she calls the hidden curriculum. The hidden curriculum is when, for instance, we um, create an education that is hegemonic and masculine and that marginalizes some students because they do not fit the stereotypes. So it is a heteronormative education, which has, it can be argued, not supported and not helped children who are LGBTQ children. Um, there is another researcher, Rogers, who talks about hegemonic masculinity. And he says that it's the way we maybe ostracize some students because they do not conform to heterosexual stereotypes, for instance. So that hidden curriculum that Sandra Ben mentioned is the idea that certain values and norms are taught in schools and are instilled and developed in the curriculum, but they might not even be done in an aware or conscious way. This goes in hand, that, that idea of hidden curriculum, with the idea of decolonizing the curriculum, because this is something that is taught maybe unconsciously by teachers, but it supports a certain structure of society. For instance, in US history, um, the choice of subjects in history lessons might be always going for white males who played a development role in the country, and then females who did 
are forgotten or people of color who had an important role in the development of, of the country are just not mentioned. I could say that the way we teach literature is a little bit the same. In my time when I was studying French literature, there were female writers mentioned, but the ones who were lauded, the ones who were applauded and celebrated were mostly uh, middle-class white French writers. So that hidden curriculum is insidious because it's not always a conscious thing. And uh, I'm sure we'll look back on some of our lessons and realize that we focused on some parts of the curriculum and we forgot maybe other very important parts because we are not always aware of that hidden curriculum. So students may be socialized and they may be taught in order to fit the roles we assign them. For instance, it was obvious that by teaching girls in the early 19th century or 18th century even, teaching them music, um, French, Italian, writing and reading and embroidery, we were not going to arm them to be independent financially. And we were not going to prepare them to maybe um, become nurses or, or having professional skills. We wanted them to stay in the home, so this is what we taught them. This is a decision made by educators, but nowadays, are we still very much aware of what we teach our students? The sociologist Samuel Bowles, B-O-W-L-E-S, and Herbert Gintis insist on the fact that girls have been encouraged for decades to learn skills that are valued in some fields, for instance, um, caring, or services, or nursing, or medicine. And boys might be encouraged to look at leadership skills for uh, occupations that are usually um, male-dominated. So it might not be conscious, but it's still happening. And as we move children through secondary and post-secondary education, we notice that boys gravitate towards the science, um, technology, engineering, and maths courses, but female classmates might go into services or more vocational ones. Why is that? Is it just a matter of taste or is it just because we reproduce what we expect in our society? Um, many sociologists are influenced by Karl Marx's conflict theory uh, and the class structure and the class struggle. And Karl Marx really thought that education was a way of maintaining social class boundaries. And when we also look at private schools, we know by definition that it is to support class boundaries and to keep these class boundaries erected. The correspondence principle in sociology is a theory that's really interesting because it explains and argues that capitalistic societies, so our modern societies, our Western societies, are geared and are using schools in order to give children different types of education not because this is what the children are interested in or what the children are good at, but because we want to reproduce the way society is, which means that working class children are very often encouraged to look at vocational training and children in private schools will be encouraged, strongly encouraged to go for academic um, fields and leadership skills to the point that, um, I see it sometimes on social media. You have students who say, oh, I was a very academic student 
and I was told you need to go to the selective courses, which are called the class préparatoire, for instance, in France. And I had a big career. And then I realized that it didn't suit me, didn't suit my taste. And then I went into a vocational course and I became a farmer. And now I make, I don't know, goat cheese or something. And I'm really happy. And this is anecdotal, but I find it really interesting because it shows that some students are pushed into a mold because of attributes that are um, inflicted on them and, and imposed on them because they come from a family of people who are barristers or, or architects and they don't want their, their children to go into vocational trades. So are we aware as educators that we might be reproducing this? Are we telling our working class children that they should aim for leadership roles? Are we telling them that? Are we telling them that they should join a debating society? Or are we telling them, oh, look at this uh, apprenticeship or look at this BTEC? Are we aware that the correspondent principle exists? So there is a close relationship between social standing and the educational system. Are we supporting our students and our girls? to be aware of this situation and to might maybe go against it. Too often we encourage girls to choose careers that will allow them to have a family. We might tell them, oh, you need to go into services because then you can, you know, finish at a certain time and you shouldn't maybe go into, I don't know, um, careers like being a pilot or um, being um, someone who works in a, in a, as a chef in um, in cooking because you, you will have difficult hours and that won't work with family life. Are we telling boys that it doesn't matter that they should go for the job they're interested in? It is something we might be unconsciously promoting. We might also contradict the children's skills. Why are we insisting on maths and science for someone who is interested in doing an arts degree, for instance? Um, it is interesting to see that if you look at performing arts, for instance, you do not need to do a GCSE drama or GCSE English or GCSE um, dance if you want to do performing arts. What you have to do is a GCSE in maths and science as well as English. Why? Why is that? Where's the logic in this? If you want to become an actor, surely you should have a GCC in drama rather than in English, maths or science. I don't know. It seems like the way education structures are set up is not always aware of the consequences on the students. So I'm aware that time is flying, so I'm just going to play the news and we'll be back just after the news, dear listeners. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, a leading publisher of books, directories, educational guides and magazines specifically aimed at forward-thinking schools in the UK and beyond. Have you checked out their latest releases? Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading! This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. The latest budget has come under scrutiny from many quarters, with many working in education frustrated about a lack of focus on funding for education as a whole. 
many have made comments on the £4 billion plan for childcare announced by Chancellor Jeremy Hunt, with Paul Waugh writing an opinion piece for the I newspaper. In the piece, Waugh refers to gaping holes in the plan to provide free childcare for working parents of under fives. Childcare providers have already warned of the lack of funding detailed in the plan, and school leaders have expressed concerns that more money will need to be found from their already stretched budgets if the proposed wraparound care is to be provided. Critics have pointed out that the new policy doesn't apply to those in apprenticeships or training, and that there is no plan to ensure that an adequately trained workforce will be in place to deliver. The government has responded by proposing changes to the staff-to-child ratio, moving from 1 to 4 to 1 to 5, but this has also raised concerns about a dilution of care. Since the budget announcement, many local authorities have published figures detailing how many children might qualify for a place in childcare under the scheme versus how many places are on offer at this time. Figures broadly suggest that, across the country, demand would far exceed places available. Many media outlets report on talks between England's education unions and government ministers. The talks will be met with what both sides describe as a period of calm for two weeks, with no further strike dates announced. It comes after breakthrough talks with unions representing other public sector workers, including nurses and ambulance crews. The National Education Union said in a statement that it had, along with the NASUWT, NAHT and school, agreed to intensive talks with Education Secretary Gillian Keegan. The announcement comes after walkouts in Wales and Scotland were postponed whilst unions ballot members on improved offers from the respective devolved governments. In Sunderland, the Echo reports on how former Lioness Jill Scott is helping girls have equal opportunities in football, after a pitch in Jarrow was opened in her honour. Scott was part of the England team who lifted the Euro 22 trophy last summer. While she's retired from playing the game, her involvement continues. In a speech as part of the opening of the new facilities, she said that girls and women's football would take priority on the new pitches. The pitches boast floodlights and 3G playing surfaces and were jointly funded by the government, the FA and the Premier League's Football Foundation. The new facilities link closely to the letter Scott and her teammates wrote to Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss, then Conservative leadership candidates, demanding all girls get the chance to play football at school. Scott said, I fell in love with football at school and pointed out that everyone should have the chance to do the same. Finally, ITV News reports on comedian Jason Manford's surprise appearance at a Leeds primary school. The comic was invited to the school after a video of him conducting an audience at one of his live shows in a sing-along of popular assembly songs went viral. The Assembly's Bangers sketch has since inspired a fundraising single, with profits donated to food bank charity the Trussell Trust. The comedian joined in with renditions of This Little Light of Mine, Lord of the Dance, and he's got the whole world in his hands. Footage of the visit is already making the rounds on Twitter. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio.
Hello, this week I'm going to talk about Deepfake. Deepfake uses artificial intelligence to create an image or video that appears to be real, but isn't. Amazingly, it's quite easy to do. It starts with a video or image of the target being uploaded to a Deepfake provider, Deepfake provider, found via a quick internet search. The AI then takes over and maps the landmark points of the target's face, just like the filters you find on popular social media apps. This is then overlaid onto another video or text-based script, and hey presto, you have control of what somebody is saying doing, wearing, or even not wearing. Oh wow. Detecting a deep fake is getting harder and harder. It started with people not blinking, but that was fixed pretty quickly. Sadly, there were lots of people making use of this for the wrong reasons, and our young people are being left to wonder what is real and what isn't. There's even something called a shallow fake, where an original video or audio is doctored using simpler editing tools to change the original message. The main questions you need to ask yourself are, why is this video being shared? When was the video published? Is the message something you'd never expect from that person? and who gains from this video. As always, if you have a tech question, why not send it to at TT Radio Official. I'm Steve Woods, and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. And now we are back, dear listeners. So we talked about um, the creation of femininity and its attributes and the way we have been teaching girls and also boys to fit into these gender constructs. Now I'm going to advocate for uh, the theory that we should have feminist schools. What do I mean by feminist schools? Well, there's a great uh, blog called beherlead.com. And it's uh, written by Edith Johnson, who is an English teacher and a blogger, obviously. And she has um, written some very powerful points about the need for feminist schools. Edith says that we need to look at the facts and the data. And the, it is quite a striking landscape that's represented through these numbers. We have a third of young girls aged 16 to 18 who have experienced unwanted sexual touching at school. And of these uh, girls, only 14% of those um, have talked to a teacher about it or reported the um, unwanted sexual touching. 36% of female students in um, state schools, in mixed state schools, have been treated differently on account of their gender. Um, this is perceived by 36% of these girls, whereas only 15% of the male students thought they were treated differently on account of their gender. Then we have also another set of data, a quarter, a bit more than a quarter, 27% of secondary school teachers said they would not feel confident tackling a sexist incident if they experienced it or if they witnessed it in school. So there is a lack of maybe willingness to act, but also lack of training, because if you were trained as a secondary school teacher, you would not hesitate in addressing sexism when you see it. And then we have a quarter of girls aged 14 who self-armed last year, and half of girls aged six or eight who feel they should be thinner. So we have a negative body image, we have self-harming, issues of mental illnesses, mental health, uh, difficulties. We have secondary school teachers who feel like they're not equipped to tackle sexism and girls who say that they have experienced sexual, unwanted sexual touching in schools. Now I'm going to go into a personal sphere and talk about my own person 
personal experience of being sexually assaulted as a professional teacher in state schools in the UK. So the first um, occurrence was in 2004. I was a teaching assistant, a French teaching assistant in a school in Bristol. And I was uh, walking between two rows of uh, chairs and tables where the students were sat and I bent over to mark a student's paper and the student was behind me stood up from behind his table and grabbed my um, underpants from my trousers and um, he was told off immediately and the head the the head of MFL was really good at it and that she had a meeting with the child and then she organized a restorative meeting with me. The child apologized to me and wrote a letter of apology and I accepted his apology and that was the first occurrence. Now the second time this happened to me, uh, it was in 2021, so much later, and this was in a London school where I was in my room after the last lesson alone and I was doing some work, obviously. And then I had a student who came in and said, uh, I'm looking for my book, miss. And then I stood up and went to the filing cabinet to look for the book. And then the student put his hand on my posterior. And I um, turned back and saw his hand was still on my posterior. And then I shouted at him and told him to leave. And then the child was approached by the head of MFL and uh, he had a chat with the police officer as well, who is in, in operating in the school. Um, but in the child never apologized and he refused to apologize and to acknowledge the fact that he did it. And he questioned my word. So this is just an example of a female teacher working in a state school. And if it happens to a female teacher, I just wonder what happens to the female students. Um, the boys were asked to apologize. One did, one didn't, and that was it. So are we tackling the issue of protecting girls and female staff in schools? Do we have a system? Is it implemented? Should we have a national way of dealing with this? Um, I think these are very important questions. And I think we don't have feminist schools yet because this is still happening and we don't seem to have a system to deal with it. Now, feminism, is it a rude word? Feminism is not really considered in a curriculum. You have to wait for um, someone to study A-level politics to have it as an option in the UK to talk about feminism. In Sweden, for instance, 16-year-old students, boys and girls, receive a book as a gift uh, by the African-Nigerian writer Ngozi Adichie. Um, she wrote Half of a Yellow Sun, which is a wonderful book, and I advise anyone who likes literature to read it. And her book is given to um, the students in order to open up a conversation about gender. Now, we have a lot of issues, as, I, as Edith Johnson mentioned in her blog. She's offering solutions though. She's not just painting a sad picture of our state schools. And I mean, it could be just exactly the same, if not worse in private schools, but she's offering solutions in her blog. She's saying that teacher recruitment and training methods have to include um, the idea of feminism. And we need to equip teachers with ways 
to protect female students and also bring change in um, male behavior in schools. There's also the measures by which schools are held to account and the way hierarchy works in schools. How come 78% of staff is female in schools in the UK, but only 38% is in leadership jobs? We need a different narrative for education. We need to tell our students a different story and we, we need to think about why we educate them and for which type of future. We need to reshape our system and be more focused on our young people's life stories and their future well-being. And we need to think about mental well-being of staff and students. We shouldn't have girls self-harming and we shouldn't have um, members of staff having mental health crisis. And as we've heard in the news, we shouldn't have head teachers committing suicide because they feel like their job is seen as lacking. So these are very important questions when we talk about femininity and feminism. We are bro broaching the subject of mental health and well-being and also um, suicide. So it is essential that we we train our teachers better and that our schools have feminism as uh, one of their behavior policy maybe when we did pshc lessons uh, pshc is an acronym that stands for personal social health and civic education and in our school we tackled the issue of toxic masculinity because there was andrew tate and the the children were talking about him so we wanted to empower our students to talk about gender and masculinity. And the problem with talking about toxic masculinity is that we uncovered a lot of gender stereotypes, a lot of bias and a lot of entrenched worldview that sees female rights as something that we can we can put it to the side. And it showed that there's actually a lot of toxic masculinity. And after putting this state of affair and, and shedding a light over it, we had no tools to deal with it. So we realized as teachers, and we talked to, to each other about it, that there is a lot of toxic masculinity in schools, in teenage teenagers' life, but we don't know what to do with it. And just one lesson highlighted the issue, but didn't solve the issue. So we need to think about it. How can we think about it? Well. First, uh, we need to overrule our educational system. We need to stop thinking about exams so much and think about what is the point of an education? Are we teaching our students to reproduce the society they live in? And if we are doing that, is it the right thing to do? Let's not forget that if we push girls into certain careers, pretending that it will fit them better because they are more caring or more sensitive or more emotional. We are um, depriving us of having more boys in these careers. I think we want more boys being interested in teaching, midwifery and nursing because the more diverse the workforce, the better. And the problem as well and the perversity of that um, of pushing students into certain roles is that we tell girls that if they have 
if they work in service industry, it will maybe facilitate their uh, family life if they want to have children in the future. Whereas we know by now that it's not the truth. If you choose to be a teacher because you think you're going to have more time to spend with your students or your own children, sorry, it's not going to happen because it's a very demanding job. And a lot of women have that job. Can they have a good balance for work and life if they're teachers, if they're nurses, if they are junior doctors? We don't think so. We've seen the strikes last week. We know that junior doctors, nurses and teachers are overworked. They have very little time to devote to their family life. And they also have restricted finances to devote to their family lives. If there's more and more girls in these fields, it will have an impact on their family life and impact on children. And then these children will go to school. So this is... Um, Opening up, opening up a Pandora box where we see that the advice or the career choices we lead our students to make might have a detrimental impact on their mental health in the long run. So this is a very difficult issue. We are preparing students for a society that may not um, lead to a positive, healthy lifestyle for them. What are the solutions? Well, we need to completely change the way we see our education system. After COVID, I guess we had a chance to do it and it seems that we're not taking that chance. I would advocate for scrapping Ofsted so that we stop putting pressure on schools, um, maybe stopping the exams the way they're done because they are not conducive to good quality teaching and learning. We might need to uh, allow students to choose their subjects and stop enforcing some subjects. Why do we decide that English, maths and science are core subjects, whereas uh, food tech and languages and um, biology aren't? Why isn't first aid part of the core subjects? Basic medicine skills might be just as beneficial as science or maths. We need to rethink the choices we make in education. We also need to think about access to nature to stop young girls from self-harming. We need to think about uh, providing free school meals for all students and with good quality food, because when you don't eat nutritious food, you can't think and learn. We need to maybe encourage the use of organic products in school. We need to offer breakfast and lunch for all students and members of staff. We might want to have an hour long break for lunch so that students have the time to, to eat sitting down and to, to chat with one another and the time to use the toilets as well. We have some students who stop going to the toilet because the toilets aren't clean or they don't feel safe. And it might be because of um, unwanted sexual touching or, or maybe because they, they're just not feeling safe in the toilets. But we have children who put their lives, their medical well-being and their health at risk by not using the toilets and the facilities. So all these details that may not be seen as major have a detrimental impact on our young people. 
I'm thinking that we should have access to sports clubs and sports facilities on an everyday basis. Um, we should have boys exercising and girls as well every day to allow them to be healthy in their mind, but also in their bodies. I would advocate for a swimming pool in every school because why not? I mean, it's 2023. We are a developed country in the UK. Why can't we have a swimming pool for every school that encourages a life skill? Swimming is a life skill, for instance. And there's also other measures that might be controversial, but that also might have a great impact. I've, I've heard of lessons where we separate genders and sexes. So we put all the girls together to study science and maths and all the boys together. And why? Because we noticed that in some uh, mixed lessons, girls just take a step back and let boys take over and answer more than them. So maybe if we want more girls in science and technology and computing, we need to give them um, separate lessons where they can shine and feel empowered and confident. We might also see um, abolition of the uniform. Is it really helping education to insist on wearing a uniform? These are all questions that we need to address when we talk about femininity, feminism, and having feminist schools. There's lots of um, groups that are created that try to encourage women to go into leadership position. I want you to maybe have a look at the website womenleadersuk.org. It's set in Milton Keynes, but it's a national scheme that tries to encourage women to be leaders because if we don't have more women leaders, we won't have women in decision-making um, positions. We want more women who have powers to change state schools, for instance. Uh, we have the, the numbers 1,400 of England's 3,700 state secondary schools are headed by women. It's less than a third. Why is there a gender ratio in favor of men in leadership position in schools in the UK? Um, this gender inequality might affect um, students as a consequence. We know there's a pay gap in all, in all jobs. Women are paid less than men, but in uh, some professions, it goes all the way up to 18%. Women are paid 18% less than men. We need to tackle this from schools because school is a tool that reproduces the society we live in. So if we have careers where women are paid less, schools might also keep that state of affair. So we need decisions to make a a real change. We need better maternity cover, bet better childcare access for all, allowing part-time position for women. We should encourage sharing roles, co-partnership. We should also spot women of talent and support them in their career and give them more uh, chances to shine, more opportunities. And a better work-life balance for men and women would have a, a positive impact on students and young people. We are all aware of um, the, the TED talk that led to a book called Lean In by Sheryl Sandberg, who works for Facebook, entitled Lean In, Women, Work and the Will to Lead. There's a website uh, where she encourages uh, women to change their workplace from within. So once you're in a workplace, try and change the workplace so that you allow more women to come into the workplace and, and 
be a motivator. So check the website leanin.org if you want to get involved. They have free CPD, free training for girls and women. We lack confidence in ourselves when we're women. We need to build on that confidence. It is really hard, but there is a TED talk called The Science of Women's Leadership by Alexis Kender Olmsted, and she explores why women don't put themselves forward and why we are um, in need of that confidence. There are internal barriers that stop women becoming leaders. It's, it's coming from within. It's a lack of confidence. It's of being afraid of not being good enough, being afraid of not being likable if we put ourselves forward, being seen as too pushy and too aggressive. And this all dates back from these gender stereotypes that I described in the first part of this podcast. The fact that women are seen, femininity is seen as being passive and and polite and, and a bit shy and masculinity is being pushy and aggressive and not, not, um, not wanting to be likable. And also the, the fact that we abuse women on social media, this stops girls and women from asking for more opportunities. So there is gender inequality. There is the question of femininity and feminism is in schools, but we also need to challenge the constructs and the society we live in. There is a relationship between gender, personality and leadership. And the fact that we always seem to choose leaders who are ticking all the boxes of these stereotypes. Uh, let's go back to the male um, stereotypes that I described earlier. Why do we see a leader as being efficient if he's aggressive, if he's not influenced, if he's dominant, if he's decisive, if he's tough, if he's less sensitive to other feel, other people's feelings, less empathetic, maybe cruel as well and not nurturing. Why do we associate these traditional gender stereotypes of masculinity to good leadership? Why do we still do this? Well, I think we're making a mistake, we're, we're ma making a mistake when we do, because actual positive leadership can benefit from um, having these different stereotypes. So we confuse confidence with competence. We want charismatic leaders rather than efficient leaders. We admire narcissistic people. We have unconscious biases and maybe these unconscious biases are cemented and promoted by the way we educate our students in schools. We have a flawed vision of leadership archetypes. We all know that good quality traits to become a leader are not being bombastic and loud. It's about being competent, uh, in having integrity, humility, and also being nurturing. And on these skills, usually women usually score higher than men on these traits. So why are men usually still seen as better leaders or promoted faster? It's a, it's a very difficult question and it won't be solved uh, in this podcast today. But there's a, a great podcast I've, I think you should look into if you want. It's tongue-in-cheek, it's a bit humorous, and it's entitled Why Do So Many Incompetent Men Become Leaders? Uh, it's a TED Talk 
from the University of Nevada, and uh, the speaker is Tomas Chamorro Premuchik. He's from um, South America, and he's a psychologist. And he's just showing how we always give incompetent male leaders too much credit, and we give them too much power. And to me, the best example is the fact that we elected Donald Trump as president of the United States in 2016. He is the epitome of the incompetent male leader, and yet he got through. So femininity and feminism in education is realizing that femininity are attributes that are very, very biased and subjective. They can change over time, and I'm hoping that they are changing now. I'm hoping that these vision of women as being nurturing and caring and passive and not dominant and not loud are going to evolve. And I'm hoping that with awareness of the rights of LGBTQ people, we are going to be a little bit less influenced by these gender stereotypes. If you want, as an educator, to challenge um, these gender stereotypes, you might want to look at content to teach your students. Um, there's one great role model for femininity and feminism, and it's Josephine Baker. I did a podcast on Josephine Baker. You can access it uh, on Teacher Talks Radio um, online. She was an amazing um, African-American activist, um, a resistance against the Nazis, and also a pop singer in the 20s. So please have a look at Josephine Baker's achievements and uh, her work for the civil rights movement. She was a friend of Martin Luther King. Now, if you want other contents, um, there is also a plethora of books about women um, were very important in the history of the world. There's a lot of content about the scientist um, uh, Marie Curie, and I'm sure you, you know about um, Rebel Girls, a storybook for Rebel Girls. There's a lot of content online to promote girls um, in STEM, in literature, and in history. But before we focus on role models, I think we need to think about the school we inhabit and we work out as this tool to reproduce society. And if society is unequal, and if society is gender stereotyped, what can we do to stop school perpetuating these uh, biases? What can we do to give the best education for girls and the best education for boys? And is it the same education that fits both? And that's why I'm really interested in these lessons where we separate girls and boys in maths and science to try and give a, a chance for girls to appreciate the subject um, on their own together. And also, what's the data behind it? It's not being studied yet, and I'm, I'm hoping researchers are going to look into it. And because I want the best for boys and girls, I'm just thinking, what would be the best school for boys? Would it be a school where we have to sit down for most of the day? Is it sustainable to expect boys to do so, and girls for that matter? What about forest school? What about sports school? What about um, a grand tour in, in the world so that these teenagers will have so much energy and so much enthusiasm can keep that enthusiasm by traveling around the world? Couldn't we change the way we teach so that we give the best education for our students. And is that possible in the current 
schools that we have. So a lot of questions, um, I'm not going to be um, solving them all today. I gave some ideas uh, how to first think about it. And I think raising awareness is the first step. But I did, I did mention the fact that we need to talk about mental health, talk about feminism and protecting girls in schools. And this might be done if we also make sure that everybody's fed properly and everybody has access to uh, nutritious food. The basics, if the basics aren't covered, we can't expect anything more uh, from our schools. So this is all coming from um, a questioning that I have about how to make things better. I'm advocating feminism as an attempt to make school better, but I I really want anyone who's listened to that podcast to realize that feminism is about empowering girls, but also empowering boys and protecting both of them in the process. I want the best for both. And I think very often when we meet the needs of girls and boys, they will thrive. So I hope this was a helpful podcast and I'm sure we'll revisit the theme of femininity and feminism. In uh, the meantime, I'm wishing you a lovely Sunday evening. I'm hoping that you're spending some time with um, the mothers in your lives because it's a Mother's Day in the UK and I wish all mothers um, peace, love and care. Thank you very much. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, a leading publisher of books, directories, educational guides and magazines specifically aimed at forward-thinking schools in the UK and beyond. Have you checked out their latest releases? Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading! This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. The latest budget has come under scrutiny from many quarters, with many working in education frustrated about a lack of focus on funding for education as a whole. Many have made comments on the £4 billion plan for childcare announced by Chancellor Jeremy Hunt with Paul Waugh writing an opinion piece for the I newspaper. In the piece, Waugh refers to gaping holes in the plan to provide free childcare for working parents of under fives. Childcare providers have already warned of the lack of funding detailed in the plan, and school leaders have expressed concerns that more money will need to be found from their already stretched budgets if the proposed wraparound care is to be provided. Critics have pointed out that the new policy doesn't apply to those in apprenticeships or training and that there is no plan to ensure that an adequately trained workforce will be in place to deliver. The government has responded by proposing changes to the staff to child ratio, moving from one to four to one to five. But this has also raised concerns about a dilution of care. Since the budget announcement, many local authorities have published figures detailing how many children might qualify for a place in childcare under the scheme versus how many places are on offer at this time. Figures broadly suggest that, across the country, demand would far exceed places available. Many media outlets report on talks between England's education unions and government ministers. The talks will be met with what both sides describe as a period of calm for two weeks 
with no further strike dates announced. It comes after breakthrough talks with unions representing other public sector workers, including nurses and ambulance crews. The National Education Union said in a statement that it had, along with the NUWT, NAHT and ASCO, agreed to intensive talks with Education Secretary Gillian Keegan. The announcement comes after walkouts in Wales and Scotland were postponed whilst unions ballot members on improved offers from the respective devolved governments. In Sunderland, the Echo reports on how former Lioness Jill Scott is helping girls have equal opportunities in football, after a pitch in Jarrow was opened in her honour. Scott was part of the England team who lifted the Euro 22 trophy last summer. While she's retired from playing the game, her involvement continues. In a speech as part of the opening of the new facilities, she said that girls and women's football would take priority on the new pitches. The pitches boast floodlights and 3G playing surfaces and were jointly funded by the government, the FA and the Premier League's Football Foundation. The new facilities link closely to the letter Scott and her teammates wrote to Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss, then Conservative leadership candidates, demanding all girls get the chance to play football at school. Scott said, I fell in love with football at school and pointed out that everyone should have the chance to do the same. Finally, ITV News reports on comedian Jason Manford's surprise appearance at Leeds Primary School. The comic was invited to the school after a video of him conducting an audience at one of his live shows in a sing-along of popular assembly songs went viral. The Assembly's Bangers sketch has since inspired a fundraising single, with profits donated to food bank charity the Trussell Trust. The comedian joined in with renditions of This Little Light of Mine, Lord of the Dance, and he's got the whole world in his hands. Footage of the visit is already making the rounds on Twitter. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, this week I'm going to talk about Deepfake. Deepfake uses artificial intelligence to create an image or video that appears to be real, but isn't. Amazingly, it's quite easy to do. It starts with a video or image of the target being uploaded to a Deepfake provider, Deepfake provider, found via a quick internet search. The AI then takes over and maps the landmark points of the target's face, just like the filters you find on popular social media apps. This is then overlaid onto another video or text-based script, and hey presto, you have control of what somebody is saying doing, wearing, or even not wearing. Oh wow. Detecting a deep fake is getting harder and harder. It started with people not blinking, but that was fixed pretty quickly. Sadly, there are lots of people making use of this for the wrong reasons, and our young people are being left to wonder what is real and what isn't. There's even something called a shallow fake, where an original video or audio is doctored using simpler editing tools to change the original message. The main questions you need to ask yourself are, why is this video being shared? When was the video published? Is the message something you'd never expect from that person? and who gains from this video. As always, if you have a tech question, why not send it to at TT Radio Official. I'm Steve Woods, and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.